Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is Paul Rudnick, whose latest novel is Playing the Palace. This is the fifth novel. There were two adult novels, two young adult novels, a memoir. Paul Rudnick is probably better known for his plays and his screenplays. Plays include Jeffrey, I Hate Hamlet, The Most Fabulous Story Ever Told, The New Century. Paul Rudnick also has written movies, including Sister Act 2, In and Out, HBO's Coastal Elites, which we're going to talk about because that just came out last summer, I Shudder, Adam's Family Values, somewhere in there, also a script doctor for The Devil Wears Prada, my stepmother is an alien, and probably most famously for that first incredible Adams Family film. There's also coming up uh, The Devil Wears Prada, a musical. There's also, of course, film of Jeffrey as well. Not to forget Libby Gelman Waxner, the alter ego film critic. That's a long and quite extraordinary list of credits, I have to say. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Let's start with playing the palace. To me, it starts out as kind of a comic gay take on the Cinderella story. But as I was reading, it seemed more like a deep dive into the story of Prince Harry and Meghan. So I want to start by asking whether that was in the back of your mind when you began working on the book, or if it's just serendipity that the two stories parallel. Oh, that, it's funny. That's just blind luck because the book actually was finished before Meghan and Harry really sort of came fully on the scene. But I love the the parallels there because I part of uh, the reason I wanted to write the book was to create a romance between people of very different social status. And I love the way that Meghan, you know, was a, a working and respected actress, but an American, a commoner. She's biracial. And there's Harry, the, the Prince of England. And I love that interaction. It's also, of course, been fascinating and sometimes horrifying to see the um, some of the, the obstacles and the prejudice that that couple has faced. But when I was watching them on the Oprah interview, initially I thought, oh, I'll watch five minutes and turn it off. And then, of course, I was absolutely consumed. I think they're, they present themselves beautifully. And it's they're also kind of my kind of royals because they're trying to use their their celebrity and their influence to do some good in the world. And that's what I was after in playing the palace for the, the two lead guys, Carter Ogden, who calls himself an associate event architect, which means he's a party planner in New York, and Prince Edgar, the crown prince of England, who meet the only way such people could, which is in New York. And I keep dreaming of a paparazzi shot of a copy of playing the palace sort of poking out of Meghan Markle's tote bag at the beach. So I'm waiting for that. Was this always going to be a novel? Had you thought that this might be a screenplay or a play? Well, it's funny. I first had the very germ of the idea, maybe even 20 years ago, when I wanted to write something 
royally focused. And I had the title of Playing the Palace. And I wasn't sure if it should be a script or a stage play or a novel. One of the few things I've learned is to let the material tell me where it wants to land. So every time I began it in some other form, it didn't feel quite right. But it was only a few years ago when I had Carter's voice, when I realized, okay, this wants to be told by the guy who's going through it, that it became a novel and that felt just right. So yeah, it, it took a while, but I think it found the exact appropriate home. I noticed in a lot of your work, and including Coastal Elites, that you start with the quips and the jokes, and once you hook the reader, the audience, things get a little serious. Is that a plan, or is that just how it works for you? That's fairly helpless, because it's funny. I never start out saying, oh, this is going to be a wild comedy, and here come the jokes. I figure out what the material is first. You know, What do I want to talk about, and whether it's sizable enough to, uh, to spend my time and the reader or the audience's time with? And with Coastal Elites, that really erupted. I wrote that right before the 2020 election. And it was an expression of the absolute rage and panic and despair that I and so many people I knew were experiencing. It, it, it was helpless. It was a sense of, no, I have to write about this. I have to write about these particular characters who are going through this and who are dreading what may possibly come next. And I knew I wanted it to be comic, because that way I thought, no, this can't be a lecture, this can't be an op-ed piece. I had a naturally comic writer, for better or for worse, that it's how the material emerges. And because we had that extraordinary cast with Bette Midler and Dan Levy and Caitlin Deaver and Sarah Paulson, Nissa Ray, my God, that they're all people who can negotiate those turns. They're all hilariously funny. They're all also world-class actors. And I think they looked forward to that mix, to the, the seriousness of the material, the hyper-emotionalism involved, and the humor that always acts as, as a very necessary balance. So that's why Playing the Palace actually became, in a certain way, the antidote to coastal elites. Because after the election, when there was at least a moment of relief, when we felt like the world could take a breath, I was so eager for an escape to someplace far brighter, someplace more deliciously comic, someplace that was a more heightened reality. So playing the palace was the most wonderful thing to then work. I was editing the galleys right after we finished shooting Coastal Elite. So it was a, a great means of sort of figuring out where my life might go next. You were writing Playing the Palace then during the start of the pandemic, and then you put it aside because it was the first draft was finished. You'd sent it off for the for the galleys. And that's when you got to work on Coastal Elites? Yes. And Coastal Elites was originally going to be performed on stage at the Public Theater in New York and directed by the, the wonderful Jay Roach. And then he was going to film it for HBO. And that was all set to go right as the lockdown began. And so for, for a while, I thought, OK, no, this project is sadly dead. But HBO came back to us and said there may be a way to do this remotely, which was how we shot it with every healthcare protocol in place and with everyone involved from cast and crew in a different part of the country. So it was wild. We were using about five different apps and Jay and I would be talking on our phones while we were shooting a rehearsal in Zoom and then filming the actual final results on another app that lent it a more filmic quality. 
And there was an intensity to it that ended up being very fortunate. And because they were monologues, it lent themselves to the intimacy of that kind of filming. And it felt like, no, these were people who had to tell their stories and they were telling them one-on-one. So that just worked out the way it felt like it always needed to be. And then once that was filmed and began to be broadcast, I could go back to playing the palace and to the galleys and enjoy an entirely different world. And it's part of the pleasure, I think, of being a writer is that you can juggle projects and that they each return to you at almost unpredictable moments. So while I was working on those galleys, I thought in a way during the pandemic, everyone in the world practically was on a writer's schedule because writers are used to a lot of downtime, being alone in their room, working remotely, and suddenly that was the norm. So whether we were shooting coastal elites, you know, over the phone or editing galleys on my MacBook, it was, I, I did, was doing it all for my couch. The final segment of Coastal Elites, which is heartbreaking, obviously could not have been written prior to June, yeah. which means that you had to change the script. The time it took between filming and putting it out there had to be very short if you wanted to get it in prior to the November election. And it also means that when you went back to playing the palace, you had changed. So uh, among all that, how did playing the palace shift afterward? And also, what was that timeline? Oh, it was incredibly compacted. Because then I felt very lucky because we were shooting on such a, a tight schedule, I could reflect everything that was happening in the culture and in the country with a real immediacy, including the, the Black Lives Matters protests, which were happening in the streets as I was writing it, and the overwhelmed healthcare system, which was reflected in, the, in Caitlin Deaver's speech as a nurse, so that I would write it. The actors were wonderfully responsive to new material and we would shoot it practically the next day because we wanted it to be a real, almost a historical artifact, a portrait of a certain group of people in America at exactly that moment. And it's very rare to be able to respond in real time that way. But because the shooting was so unique, I was able to do that. Then once I went back to playing the palace, I was a very different guy, the way I think so many of us changed in a certain way. There was a pandemic, which was a whole new level of anxiety and and fear, but at least it was kind of a common enemy that it, until, of course, it did eventually get politicized, but there was still a sense of, you know, okay, we are now dealing with a natural phenomenon rather than an evil human being. During the election, my partner and I went and canvassed voters in Pennsylvania, and we were poll watchers there as well because there was the sense that that was where the need was greatest. And that was another activity that we both felt driven to do because we couldn't sit home and just melt down. So once that was done and once the election had happened, it felt like, okay, now there was a moment for for playing the palace. And maybe it also had something to offer for people who'd been locked down for a year and who needed this sort of delicious romantic comedy break from all that time, you know, shut away and all that time it with frantic concern about their health and the health of their loved ones. Someday I'll look back on this timeline and try to make a lot more sense of it. 
But yeah, it was one thing after the other. I finished playing The Palace. As I was reading it, more stories came out about Harry at the exact moment I was reading where Edgar was going through his things. There is something to be said for the zeitgeist, that there are things happening in the world that just, you know, penetrate your brain and emerge in other forms. But so, and certainly royalty, I think, is a constant obsession, especially weirdly among Americans like myself. You think, why are we so concerned about the figureheads and the monarchs of a country we broke away from and held a revolution to escape? But we are. Anytime they put a royal on the cover of People magazine, it's a bestseller. So, and I just surrender to that. I just can't get enough. And it's, I think there's an element of soap opera there too. And certainly the royals can serve the same function as movie stars, or maybe the way movie stars used to function in, in America. They're figures of sort of mystery and glamour and romance, and we get to project onto them because they're, in certain senses, very private people. They don't tend to give a lot of interviews. They don't allow a lot of access, which means we get to make up the stories in our heads. We get to use them as our our personal chessboard. So yeah, it's something that's a constant. So I I felt, yeah, the Megan and Harry thing is just, again, coincidence, but one that I, I was found very welcome especially because, I mean, to watch Harry quite recently become so much more open and discuss his struggles with mental illness and substance abuse, which are more than understandable given what he's had to deal with, especially as a child, that's been unheard of for a royal. So I thought a gay royal couple is is certainly a logical next step. There's one more element, which is that you don't shy away from the fact that on many levels, royalty is obsolete. You have Carter, and more importantly, Carter's roommates, talking to Edgar and about Edgar in the same way that I've read op-eds in the past few months about Harry. I can argue either side of this debate because royalty does not make a whole lot of sense in, in the world today. On the other hand, Again, it's one of the things I admire about certain members of the royal family. I remember especially being impressed with Princess Diana because she was one of the first celebrities at that level of of fame and influence to go into hospital wards and talk to and touch AIDS patients, you know, many decades ago. And that made an enormous difference. That was such a good example of someone using a certain nonsensical level of celebrity to do real good. And I think that's what Harry and Meghan are after as well. So that's a way of justifying the royal family. You know, and also I think if they mean something in England that they don't mean here, that there is a sense of pride and a sense of history that makes them uh, essential on many levels. But yeah, that's why I wanted to include in the book, especially there are Americans who feel, no, they're a ridiculous anachronism. They're a symbol of the worst forms of white privilege they really do need to go. But I miss them. You know, and I have friends who are true royalty addicts who subscribe to all those English glossies and can't get enough of, you know, the Duchess and the Marchioness and the Viscount of whatever at home in Sussex. So yeah, I just sort of took advantage of all the arguments. Now I want to move a little more into your career with a kind of broad question. When we talk about coastal elites, And as you said, it's kind of a point in time that we're experiencing now. That brought to mind Jeffrey. It brought to mind Normal Heart, because it seems that 
there's something to be said by being specific about a time where maybe five minutes later, it feels passe, it feels old, and then 10 years later, it no longer does because it's part of history. Does that make sense to you when you're working on these things? I was a gay man living in New York at the peak of the AIDS crisis. How could I not write about it? That wasn't a choice. That wasn't, you know, any kind of inner debate. That was, no, 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 these, this is, these are my friends. This is my tribe. These are my people. And I need to contribute something. I need to see if there's any way I can help. That's why I also remember I saw the original production of The Normal Heart. And that was at a point when the mainstream media was ignoring the disease entirely, not to mention what the government was was doing. So when people went to see The Normal Heart, it wasn't just for this gripping play, which was an extraordinary work of art. It was for sheer information. I remember they had scrawled the the um, the numbers of the people who were infected and the people who died on the set, and they were constantly being updated. So it was volcanic. I mean, you had to see that play if you were living in New York or and if you were alive and if you had friends who were dying or already gone, which was why with Jeffrey, I thought, I wondered, okay, how can I contribute? Because I am a comic writer, and there was some sense at that time that maybe humor was no longer appropriate. But I thought, no, no, no. With the people I knew who were battling this illness, often their their wit was the only weapon they had because there were certainly no treatments and there was very little attention being played. So I thought comedy became almost more essential than ever. And in a strange way, it was a very exciting time because theater had become suddenly so necessary and so much a part of New York life. And I loved being able to, you know, do whatever I could with that in that regard. I'm always suspicious when people claim that material is dated simply because it takes place at a specific point in time. If you try to write something universal and timeless, it will usually feel far more flat to me. It will feel like, oh, it's it's for everyone for all time. So it's a fable and it's a little empty and a little blank. It doesn't really reply to anyone. I think if you write truthfully, and you write very specifically about any era, especially your own, it can tend to last because there's an authenticity there that also becomes increasingly valuable as a historical record. And I find that people that are far younger than me, you know, Generation Z folks are often fascinated by periods they did not live through. I think there was a period where people stepped back from any works about the AIDS crisis because there was a burnout factor or a sense of, oh, you know, enough already, or we're on to the next crisis. But now there's a sense, I mean, that wonderful HBO series, It's a Sin, that Russell Davies just created, that people want the information again. And there are people who live through it, are sometimes have their own take on things, but and sometimes are still, that's... That could be very emotional to deal with that material again. But for younger people, they welcome the history that might not be included in their school books. So I, I never worry about what I write becoming dated. I think, no, it needs to be honest. It needs to be funny. And you know those are, are enormous challenges in themselves. But yeah, it's fascinating to see how cyclical things can be. Because yeah, I think with, um, with Coastal Elites, I think in the next 20 years, people might look back at that show and go, oh, right, that's what it felt like. That was the 
anxiety level. That was the insanity of that particular moment. And it will become useful in that way. And I think, especially because of that cast, it will remain wildly entertaining as well, which was our other goal. Especially thanks to the internet, we now have access to information from every conceivable era, and it's all valuable. Paul Rudnick, one element about Coastal Elites is the first monologue by Bette Midler. Putting aside the jokes about NPR and the tote bags, her feelings toward Trump were the same feelings that kept me awake for six months leading up to the election. And now that we're past that kind of, though, of course, the Republicans are on the march again, it struck me as, oh, my God, I remember that nightmare. I don't want it back. (laughs) (laughs) Which that is more than understandable. I think we have all so desperately needed to take a breath and and have some distance. So I I completely appreciate and, and understand that. I think there's something about Coastal Elites, especially the Bette Midler segment, where she seems insane at times, which was how we all felt. Why it couldn't be sustained, and thank God it didn't have to be, that sense of nonstop 24-7 outrage. I remember when I would call friends and we'd swear we were not going to talk about Trump, and two seconds later we'd be you know, analyzing every one of his most recent tweets and hideous remarks. So I think we don't have to be quite that vigilant right now. On the other hand, we're all, we all kind of don't want it to return. So there's still some sense of no, keep your guard up. I would understand if someone said, no, I can't be that crazy again, not right this second. One thing about Jeffrey is that the character is in the AIDS crisis, but he's HIV negative, which was exactly my situation. So I was watching this and it was like, watching me, which was kind of scary. Although it's so interesting because the AIDS crisis, Lord knows, is still with us. The the superb actor Billy Porter just came out as being HIV positive for the past 14 years. And I think serodiscordant couples have become a, a constant and something that people have learned to deal with, that sense of, okay, what does it mean if you are positive and your partner is not? In its strange way, I thought that was the obstacle in the, the the romance that's at the core of Jeffrey, that sense of, yep, that's what we're dealing with today. It's no longer just divorce or therapy or, gee, my partner is selfish and withholding. It was like, no, no, no. Now the stakes have gotten so much unimaginably higher when death enters the, the room and illness and caregiving. Yeah, that's why Jeffrey felt Oh, it was something that I really had to write because I knew so many people, myself included, who were going through those particular daily challenges. And that I liked the idea of using someone like a character like Jeffrey, who was trying to decide if he was allowed to be an outsider, if he was an onlooker, if he could escape back to his childhood home in Wisconsin, and why maybe that was not such a good idea. Maybe you need to be where your people are. And maybe you need to find some way to be of use. Those situations, just like with both Coastal Elites and Jeffrey, the the stakes involved, the level of pain and the, the search for any possible joy is what makes those subjects and those time periods exciting. Paul Rudnick, going back, way back to the beginning of your career, were you the class cut up? I grew up in New Jersey, so humor was <laughs> sometimes deliberate and sometimes simply omnipresent. 
I actually found out recently that Piscataway was named after the Piscataw River, which is in New Hampshire. It makes no sense. You know, also, I was always intrigued by the fact that so many places and schools in New Jersey are named after Native Americans, but there was so little attention paid to indigenous history. So there's a lunacy there. But there were lots of people who were quite funny. I had a very dear friend named John Zyke, who was a brilliant cartoonist who could make me just laugh helplessly. The guy who's no longer with us was a diagnosed schizophrenic. I also come from a family where humor was highly valued because they were New Jersey Jews. Being funny was a way to get through the day and it was a way of not taking yourself or your problems quite so seriously. It was a, a means of getting over yourself that I totally treasured. I loved hearing the, the kind of natural comic rhythms around my family's dinner table. So I think I was part of the, the comedy of all those locales, but I'm not sure I was the clown in residence. After school, you did have jobs, various jobs, writing book copy and working with a, what is it, a designer. But what brought you into the world of writing? Were you always scribbling something? I was. I, it intrigued me and terrified me in many ways because it was something I longed to do, was in, in no way sure I'd be capable of. I uh, luckily fell in with a group of wonderful young and aspiring theater professionals, including that was my, my dear friend who remains so, William Ivy Long, a costume designer who was just starting out then and living at the Chelsea Hotel. And he, now he has like six Tony Awards. But he luckily hired me off the books and paid me, you know, enough for subway fare. I got to know the playwright Wendy Wasserstein, who died far too young. But there were people who became examples and role models, people who were actually taking a life in the theater or life as a writer seriously and figuring out a way to make it financially viable. So that was essential to me to be able to see people who were doing what I only could dream of doing at that point. But yeah, I remember my mom once showed me some composition from when I was like seven years old in which I, I wrote about my intention of being a playwright before I think I'd ever seen a play. It just sounded good to me. So it was always a dream, but it was something that, and I was such a theater rat early on, that it. I thought, okay, I'm going to be part of this world. I am not sure exactly how yet. And, and it took me a while, but writing was always a goal. Essays seem to have come first, though I guess it sounds as if the first thing you really focused on was theater. Yes. Also, theater rarely pays anyone's rent, so that I supported myself by kind of cobbling together a, a life from all sorts of odd jobs, one of which involved writing for magazines. I tended to kill magazines at that point. It's funny, I was talking to someone about this the other day. At this point in the, the 80s and the 90s, when there was still a flourishing print culture, anyone who had an extra few hundred thousand dollars would, in New York would either open a restaurant or they'd start a magazine. So there were a lot of outlets for journalism by people with not a lot of experience. There were things called New Times and Seven Days and Egg, all these magazines that are long, long gone. But I was able to make money writing for those magazines. So that was, again, lucky and not a lot of money, believe me. But it was the way to support my theater habit, which eventually, like so many other playwrights, working for the movies and for television is a way of, of paying for that off-Broadway dream. 
But yeah, I made my way the way everyone does. I think now aspiring writers use the internet and are be able are able to be very proactive and very self-promoting in the best possible sense because that's their way in. And sometimes they do an awful lot of work that they are not paid for, hoping that they will someday be able to work on a more professional and financially doable level. Also, back then, it was much cheaper to live in New York. What exactly was the first play that people performed that you wrote? And what was the first production like? Those are two different questions. The first play I wrote that was performed was my my senior project at Yale. When I remember what had happened was they had switched the head of the department on me in my senior year. And this sort of made me very irate in the most juvenile, infantile way possible. So I decided to write a play basically encompassing everything anyone said to me the week before. So it was a play that was entirely consisted of the most scurrilous gossip. And then the new head of the department sort of called my bluff and said he loved it and I needed to stage it. That step had never occurred to me. So I managed to sort of dragoon a performance space at one of the senior societies there and Shanghai, a group of actor friends. And I remember I decided to have a party and I passed out flyers on the campus so we'd have an audience. And at the peak of the party madness around midnight, I made everyone shut up and said, okay, now you're going to hear my play. And the play actually, this just, I just came back to me, was called Dirt. So, and it was remarkably funny. There were songs as well. So that was the first moment when I sort of heard my possible voice on stage. And it was one night only, and it was an interesting debut. And I think I got an A on it. So I'm not sure I would ever really call that a play, but it, it, it did the trick. My first professional production was some years later, I wrote a play called Poor Little Lambs, which was about the Yale Whiffenpoops, which is the sort of premier acapella singing group at the university. And what intrigued me was I invented a character who wanted to be the first female member of the Whiffenpoops. I was, this was long before Glee, and about how that was not possible. In fact, the Whiffenpoops have not become sexually integrated until fairly recently. But I wanted to take advantage of that weird contradiction that when this group of guys sang, they sounded blissful, that it was just the most gorgeous noise. And yet in their personal lives, they could be absolute idiots. You know, and it's certainly when it came to their relationships with women, they were impossibly backwards. So that was the kind of germ of, of Poor Little Lambs. And it was given an absolutely wonderful first-rate off-Broadway production with a terrific director named Jack Hofsitz, who had just won a Tony for The Elephant Man. And the cast included terrific people like David Naughton and Blanche Baker and the very young Kevin Bacon and Bronson Pinchot. So I could not have had a better introduction to the theater. And the reviews were okay, but it was a very necessary slap in the face to me because there was an enormous part of me that didn't know what I was doing. I was being coached by some extremely gifted people. But once the play was open and I saw what worked and what didn't, I thought, okay, if I'm going to take this seriously, if this is going to be my career, if this is going to be my calling, I have to get so much better. I have to work so much harder. That production was a gift. It was a way of the world saying, okay, take a look at what you might be capable of. 
So, and then it took many more years after that for me to write anything that did not embarrass me. <laughs> that was my dream, was something where I would not cringe. But it was a debut that I'm quite grateful for because it was done at such a level that anything that went wrong was my fault. I could not blame the cast. I could not blame the director or the scale of the production. It was like, nope, Paul, this is on you. So yeah, that was how things began. There's a difference in dealing with humor when it's on the page compared to what happens when it's on stage in terms of timing, in terms of how something is going to make it or flop. Was that a a big problem for you to kind of figure out that it was possible to write something like playing the palace and not worry so much about the timing because people will laugh versus any of your plays or films where timing is absolutely essential? Oh, yeah. No, that was a real learning curve from working in, in every possible medium because there were jokes that will just soar on stage that, in fact, when we made the movie of Jeffrey, we were so smug that there was stuff that we knew had been so tested by the theater production that just simply with the same actor did not work on screen. It just thudded. And so that was a very necessary education. And with novels, what I really welcomed was that sense that I could create the entire world. I mean, I love the collaboration of theater or movie making, but I'm dependent on so many other, on a director, on a cast, on a cinematographer. When I write a book, I get to do be all that. You know, I make every decision. I get to guide the reader through the experience on a visual level, on a comic level, you name it. So I really welcome that. But it is, it's very different because on stage especially, the audience tells you if it's funny or not. You know, if they're not laughing, you can argue all you like, but you better fix it. On the page, I could, there could be a more nuanced and subtle kind of humor where I thought, okay, I can plant things that may detonate later in the, in the narrative, and I can create a certain rhythm that isn't necessarily stage-friendly. In an early novel of mine, I'll take it, I wanted to recreate the, uh, the speech rhythms of my family, especially my mom and her two sisters, and I just loved really acting as practically a tape recorder to get that right. And with playing the palace, there was the fun of, okay, how do Americans, how does a guy from New York and who grew up in Jersey, like Carter, how does he speak as opposed to the far more elevated and educated and literate grammar of Prince Edgar, and especially of his mother, uh, great-grandmother, rather, Queen Catherine, so that I love the variety involved. It's funny, rather than it feeling burdensome to sort of go from one form to the next, it was always deeply pleasurable because one of the things I love about being a writer is that it's always a blank page. You know that I don't go to an office every day. There's not that sense of repetition. So that, okay, let's see what the prince and the commoner will demand of my particular comic skill set. But you do have to realize that make the adjustment. You know, you're not driving a Cadillac anymore. Now you're driving a bicycle. What was it like working as a script doctor, along with your other screenplays, particularly on Devil Wears Prada or the first Adams family? It was fascinating. It was another great way to have a a decently funded education. 
because on the first day, I was brought in on the first Adams Family movie because they were having all sorts of plot problems and character problems. And what was the the most deepest pleasure on that was mastering Charles Adams' tone that I think he's, you know, the, the genius cartoonist who created the Adams Family. And so I wanted to see how can that translate into a movie. And luckily then, because the first film did well, when we made the sequel, Adams Family Values, which is all my work, we had an even more freedom. And, and I think the thing I loved most was that it was a big budget studio film that was in no way expected to be wholesome. So in the second movie, especially, I remember our, our wonderful director, Barry Sonnenfeld, saying, you know, we could probably toss a baby off the roof here. And the studio said, fine. So I also got, I, I did a big overhaul on the first Wives Club, which was a different kind of pleasure because we had that amazing cast with Bette and with Diane Keaton and Goldie Hawn. And I, so I came on board and it's funny, that script, which I think people don't realize, was originally a very serious film, that it was a real exploration of divorce. And the producer, Scott Rudin, wanted, said, no, this is going to be a comedy. These are the ladies involved. And so that's what why I was sort of employed there. So that was its own challenge. And again, it's great to know when you're working on a movie, which actors you're writing for. That's always a gift because you can really tailor the material. It's sometimes dangerous to ever write a play or a screenplay designed for one performer, because if they say no, then you can be a little bit lost. But yeah, on Devil Wears Prada, I was one of many writers. And the final script is completely the work of, of a terrific writer, Eileen Brosh McKenna. That belongs to her. But it was material that really intrigued me. And I, I know people in the fashion world, and I loved Lauren Weisberger's novel. It was terrific. So it was a great chance to, you know, become part of a team. But the, by the time the film was made, I was long gone. But I do remember at that time thinking it was a very natural source for a musical because it has two outsized female leads. It takes place in a, in a fantasy world. It felt that it would lend itself to that form. And, and now it is. And now I'm, I'm back at being involved again as, as the co-writer of, of the book with, with Kate Weatherhead, who's a wonderful writer as well. I had that same feeling when I wrote Sister Act. I knew that this would someday be a musical as well. And it is. I was not involved with that stage version, though, at all, but I'm glad it's there. It's a, a lucky way also to support, again, my personal theater habit to say, okay, come on board as, as a kind of script doctor, as a mechanic, as a gun for hire on a great Hollywood movie with some terrific stars and see what you can do to, to make them shine and to take original material and maybe move it a step further and build on what others, often very gifted writers, have given you. Paul Rudnick, talking about your um, extensive film career, two questions. The first is, Sister Act, exactly what you described happened. You wrote it for one person, and then Whoopi Goldberg came in. That's the first question. The other is, on a lot of your work, the studios could easily nix different elements. You mentioned on uh, Adam's Family, but also on something like In and Out. Did you always prevail? I occasionally prevail. <laughs> I think the one, the lesson that every scriptwriter and, and almost anyone involved with filmmaking, with Hollywood filmmaking, realizes is that there are financial concerns. That you are part of a business. You are only one element among many, and you are often at the absolute lowest rung. 
you are not a powerful figure unless you are a writer director, unless you're, you know, Quentin Tarantino or Aaron Sorkin. And I think that even they have had their battles with executives, with focus groups, with marketing concerns. But by the time In and Out came along, that was a very uh, almost ideal experience because working again with that film was the product of, of an idea again from Scott Rudin. And we had the terrific Frank Oz as, as director and another dream cast with Kevin Klein and Joan Cusack, who I also worked with on Adam's Family Values. So there was a sense of mutual pursuit there. We were all on the same page. We were all making the same movie. And what was funny was that while the script was being developed, you could smell the fear on the part of a lot of the executives because it was such gay material. And what they would often say whenever they, you know, worried that it was getting a bit too gay, they'd say, oh, Paul, doesn't this feel like it's getting a little repetitive? Until finally one day I did turn to them and say, you know, we just have to accept something. I was born repetitive. And that, that question never arose again. And it was funny, everything they were most concerned about, like there was a very extended same-sex kiss between Kevin Klein and Tom Selleck, became the peak of the movie. When they finally did have test screenings, that was everyone's favorite scene. Sometimes the audience would go wild. They would throw things at the, at the screen during that kiss, but they wouldn't leave. So there was a sense of, okay, we knew, even though that's in many ways uh, a sort of Frank Capra-style movie, it's very mainstream, it was a real step forward at that time and a real risk. And that's what was important in a certain sense was that it was financially successful because the studios like to point to gay material and say, oh, we'd love to tell gay stories, but there are no gay stars. It's too niche. It's not relatable. The audience won't go for it. And with films like in and out like The Birdcage, like Brokeback Mountain, like Moonlight, all of these movies made plenty of money. It's been proven time and again that these stories are not only artistically successful, they're commercial. It's a lesson that Hollywood is still only, has barely begun to learn. I think television has been more welcoming. And it also has taken sort of crusading gay producers like Greg Berlanti and Ryan Murphy to insist on gay subject matter and on gay performers. Yeah, it's been a process. And I learned often the hard way, and but still well compensated. So it's, it's strange. It's it, when screenwriters gripe and whine, my sympathies are, you know, identical. But on the other hand, you signed the contract, you cast, cash the check, you were using that money to support yourself, your family, and sometimes to underwrite, again, theater work, novels, far less remunerative projects. It's a racket in a lot of ways, but it can be extremely helpful. What happened with Sister Act? It was written for Bette Midler and then Whoopi Goldberg came in. Yes, because I just am a longtime Bette Midler acolyte. So I crafted it entirely for her. And she was sort of at the peak of her movie career then. And she had a big deal at Disney, which was where the movie landed. And Bette was always had this strange concern about playing a nun. She worried that the audience wouldn't accept her. And she had a certain level of superstition. And God bless Beth, because she has long since said, you know, I should have done that. I was being crazy. But Whoopi Goldberg, you know, did a, a terrific job. And the movie ended up being very successful. But it was frustrating because I could hear that in my head. And also that's why it had become so musicalized, because we wanted to take advantage of Beth's, you know, amazing gifts as, as a performer and as a singer. So that was a somewhat tortured project because, oh, it had the most... A wonderful director, a man named Emil Ardolino, who had made his initial success 
filming dance companies for PBS. So he came from a very different world and was the sweetest, gentlest man. And I think sometimes the studio would run roughshod over him. And he, he later died of AIDS. He directed Dirty Dancing as well. So it was a talent that was gone, you know, far too early, like, like so many others. While I was researching that movie, he even sent me to a convent for a weekend. I talked to so many nuns. I acquired so much research that was completely unusable. It was so insane when I'd be in a room telling Disney executives about how how many lesbian nuns there were and how that life was often a refuge for women who didn't want to marry. And the Disney guys would sort of stare at me blankly and say, you know, maybe that's not a really useful tidbit, Paul. But so it was crazy. That was really the first movie I, I wrote that got made. So it was trial and error, but it worked out. Libby Gilman Waxner. When Premiere came out, Libby Gilman Waxner was my favorite critic. And after a while, because I forgot how I found out, I found out that it was you. What's the story behind that? Premiere came to me very early on in the magazine's existence and asked if I was interested in writing film criticism. And I thought, you know, there are kind of far too many film critics already. So I said, what about someone a bit on the fictional side? And they went for it. And Libby just burst forth because she's pure id. I, I, could, I still sometimes write with or as Libby for The New Yorker. But she gets to tell every dirty secret about how people really watch movies when they obsess over movie stars, over decor, over whether that character could ever afford to live in that apartment. So I loved the freedom of writing both under a pseudonym and of making those particular observations, sort of every taboo, you know, was, was shattered. And it was really fun in the early years before people realized that Libby might not quite exist because there would be very angry letters to Premier saying, well, this woman just, all she does is talk about her children and, and her husband and who she wants, which movie stars she wants to have sex with. She should go watch some Francois Truffaut. And I thought, my God, the degree of not getting it is, is pretty immense there. And then Libby started receiving marriage proposals, which I loved. She, re she got one from a sailor on a destroyer. She got another one from a guy who claimed to be a part-time male model and a Yale senior. And Libby, of course, said, oh, sure, prove it. And it all turned out to be true. And years later, I actually met that particular gentleman who was heterosexual. And we laughed because also we thought, okay, which is more embarrassing, being a fictional woman or proposing marriage to a fictional woman? Because he claimed he would leave his fiance for Libby, which I and Libby herself deeply appreciated. So she was a wonderful outlet for some of my, you know, most wayward thoughts on, on both on movies and, and on the rest of the world. And I think the readers eventually caught on that there was, you know, something afoot here. But I think they always loved the tone and the fact that Libby could express a lot of sort of truths that ordinary film critics are a bit embarrassed about or a bit reluctant to go after, you know, so that there's a side to Libby that's actually quite serious and that judges the movies in ways that are deeply personal and deeply honest. So she's always been a particular joy to, to get to know. As you mentioned, she occasionally pops up now in The New Yorker. This past year, Libby made a particular adjustment because there were so few movies to go see. You had to start reviewing Netflix and HBO Max and Hulu. So she got addicted to all of those 
police procedurals from all over the world that I think she was especially taken with the um, the gritty dramas from Scandinavia, which always somehow seemed to revolve around wind turbines and solar power. That are somehow not how murders occur in the, in the United States. I think she was also deeply grateful for shows like The Undoing with Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant because they really had a level of Hollywood glamour and New York penthouses that she related to passionately. You know, when anyone would commit a murder, they would immediately flee to their house in the Hamptons. And she also especially loved The the Flight Attendant because Kaylee Cuoco was so great. She was really giving a, a movie star's performance in that miniseries that Libby deeply appreciated. And a look at Hudson Yards, which was fun too. So Libby's a way into all sorts of observations. Paul Rudnick, I noticed in IMDb a project called The Biggest Star in Appleton with Kristen Chenoweth. Is that still on the table? No, sadly, that was a project very dear to my heart that was from producer Dan Jinks and Kristen was on board. That was for Disney+. Plus. And they optioned it and I wrote a pilot and then they decided not to move forward with it because they decided it wasn't the demographic that they were after. It was kind of set in the world of community theater with Christian as the most wonderful, aspiring small town star, which was a world that I grew up in. People who treat that level of theatrical endeavor with enormous passion and commitment and somehow imagine see it as a real branch of, of world time show business. So I loved writing it, but who knows? You know, it might return in some other form or at some other network, but that's part of the roll of the dice there, that the studios and the streaming services often develop far more material than that ever reaches the audience. So that was one of those those projects that went to the warehouse, at least for now. How many of those screenplays do you have in the warehouse that could come out sometime? Oh, countless. I think along with so many other writers that we're all used to it, it it sometimes becomes shocking when something actually gets made and you have to remember, oh my God, that was what I was after. You get very used to writing for the trunk. What I like to do sometimes is I will learn from those projects and I will borrow characters or moments that inform other, not just other screenplays, but novels and, and plays as well so that nothing ever goes to waste. But yeah, there are some dream things that might someday be realized. But I I always like to keep moving forward. So never treat your books as if they are absolute gems that all need to be foisted on the planet. This is one of those fan questions that I'm sure you hate. But if you were to look at all of your movies, which one would you say is the most and which one the least successful? I mean, I have favorite moments in, in all of them, usually revolving around performances. You know that I will watch Joan Cusack any day of the week, endlessly, you know, so she has scenes in both in and out and Adam's family values that I just cherish also. Cause I remember while we were shooting those scenes, the crew and myself, we would shove Dixie cups into our mouths to stop from laughing and ruining the takes. Cause Joan was just so brilliant. And I love being on set while, while Kevin Klein was shooting his be a man sequence from, from in and out. And I was able to add dialogue sort of on the fly because he was so brilliant and so, and he was dancing up a storm. So we thought, yeah, let's just keep going with this. So that's, that's stuff I treasure. I also love shooting the Jeffrey movie because we shot it independently, no permits, no money on the streets of New York. So you got to run around with Patrick Stewart and Sigourney Weaver and Olympia Dukakis and folding chairs. So that was a very, very special experience as well. As far as the ones that didn't work out, 
oh my Lord, there are too many to mention and I'm not going to, you know, depress myself quite that completely. But there are plenty that for various reasons, my own work often very much included, did not work. I think the one thing that, that sometimes audiences don't quite understand is no, almost no one sets out to make a dud or a bomb that they don't say, you know, I don't really care that much about this one. Let's just hurl some crap on the screen. People always care passionately. I've worked every bit as hard on the fiascos as I do on the successes. The failures can be quite painful, you know, and again, I cash the check. So I, I really should not whine about that. But you endlessly go over in your head, how did this go wrong? What should I have done? What was the, was it doomed from the start? How, well, I guess my main goal in life is to always make fresh mistakes. Don't make the same mistake twice because then you, then it's really your fault. So yeah, going forward, I think, no, next time will God willing, hopefully be better. And once in a while that happens. Paul Rudnick, right now we've got the very recent HBO movie, Coastal Elite. We've got the book, Playing the Palace, just came out. What's the story right now on Guilty Pleasure, which was supposed to open, but then came the pandemic? What's the story on that now? That was set to premiere at the La Jolla Playhouse, which I, I adore, with Chris Ashley directing, who directed Jeffrey and so many other of my plays, who's just brilliant and who, you know, a Tony Award winning Broadway stalwart. So that has been rescheduled. I think it will be sometime next year. I think La Jolla is still figuring out its season. All those theaters are, are you know, considering how, to what extent they can open, to what extent they, uh, how, how big the audiences can be. But it will return. So, and it's a play very dear to my heart. So, uh, so if you keep an eye open sometime, uh, maybe a year from now, Guilty Pleasure will emerge. And one final question, something I noticed that most writers that I've spoken with and playwrights that I've spoken with in the past couple of years, all of them consider wanting to be showrunners. How about Paul Rudnick? Oh, I would find that far too daunting. I'm so impressed with showrunners. They basically do 18 jobs at once, and they are so essential to maintaining the tone and the speed and the style of any any particular series, especially if it's one, if it's something beloved where they realize that the audience is looking for a certain level of quality uh, on that every week. So I would, I, I would find that just exhausting and debilitating and impossible, which is why I think showrunners are, you know, to be only to be saluted because they make everyone else look so good. And when I've worked with people in that capacity, I'm just in awe. But yeah, no, that's, I, I, I collapse within 24 hours. And if you had your druthers, would you go back and be in the uh, writer's room of your show of shows? Oh, my Lord. Again, that would be, oh, I, I would shrivel up. You know, when you think of the people who were in that room, Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, Woody Allen, everybody, that that was such a cradle of greatness that I, I don't think I'd be able to speak. But it's, a, it's, it's interesting to watch. There's a timeline also with Saturday Night Live and SCTV and so many other great comedy shows that produced all this talent. So many people emerged from those particular crucibles so that it's a, why it's always great to, to keep an eye on the credits and see, okay, who's going to become world famous a couple of years from now? But yeah, your show shows was certainly landmark. The reason I mentioned that is that in reading Playing the Palace and then in listening to the monologue from Coastal Elites, 
I could see you fitting in there very easily. Oh, I, I, that's, I, that is a very kind thought. I think I would, I don't know how everyone in that room was not wildly intimidated. Although, of course, at that point, nobody knew who all of those, you know, geniuses were going to become. And also, I guess I'm a little bit more of a lone wolf. I tend to, you know, like to hole up in, in my office, in my room, on my couch with a yellow legal pad and a big pen. That's, and although then I, I love being able to get on set or in a rehearsal room with other other wonderfully talented people. But for the writing itself, that I, I always need a lot of solitude for. You've been listening to an interview with Paul Rudnick, whose latest novel is playing The Palace. Coastal Elites can be found at HBO Max. And I guess Devil Wears Prada Musical will be coming up soon. And Guilty Pleasure will be showing itself sometime next year at La Jolla Playhouse. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.